Oh, beloved, isn't it a wonderful thing to be safe, to be loved, to be healed, to know that, to know it because God is for us. And he's proven that he's for us through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and was raised again. It's through faith in him that we are safe, we are loved, we are healed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this matchless gift that you have given us in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that because of him, who he is, what he's done, uh, because of the promise of his coming, um, even though the world would rage against us, we are safe. Uh, even though men and women might reject us, we are loved. Even though our bodies fail and we face pandemics and illnesses and uh, we even face the certainty of death in this world. Even so, we are healed. Because in your kingdom, there is no death. There is no disease. There is no crying. We praise you, O Lord, for all that you have done for us in Jesus, your Son. And we thank you that we could sing that anthem as our own autobiography because of Jesus. And we pray that you would press these truths to our hearts now as we look at Jesus in your word, be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I don't know if you've had the unsettling experience that I have sometimes had watching television commercials. Particularly commercials for like, you know, some kind of over-the-counter or some kind of prescription medication. They draw you in by talking about whatever the disease is or whatever the illness is that the medication is supposed to treat, you know, they ask you those leading questions and you nod a little bit. They tell you about all the wonderful things that, that this drug will do if you take it. And then at the end, they start talking real fast about all the side effects. They have to tell you the side effects because that's the law. But you notice how they try to downplay the risks of taking the drugs. But if you ever look them up, you read things like this. Side effects include diarrhea, upset stomach, muscle and joint pain, and changes in some blood tests. The, the, the drug warns of uh, liver problems, muscle problems, even kidney failure. Well, that was something just to treat cholesterol. Well, the cure is worse than the disease. There are six or seven other things listed there that can result from taking that drug. The drug company kind of has to tell you, but they won't tell you real fast so you don't think about it too long. And you don't do your homework as a consumer. In that sense, drug companies and many other sort of products that are advertised, they want blind followers, not informed followers. And it might be that when you come to thinking about Jesus, that you think those of us who follow Jesus well, we're kind of like that. We're the gullible followers, the blind followers who take a, take a blind leap of faith, as some people say, that we are uninformed about things. Well, I want to assure you, nothing can be further from the truth. When you meet a genuine Christian who loves the Bible, you meet someone who has been informed by that very Bible about the costs of discipleship, about the risks of following Jesus. But instead of putting the warnings in fine print or in some fine, some rapid speech at the end of the commercial, the Bible puts the, the warnings and the costs in bold, right up front, 
It's the headline. They don't bury the lead. Now, I want you to know this morning that following Jesus means risk. There's no way to enter into the prophetic life of Jesus and the life that he calls us to as Christians without risking family, without risking insecurity, without risking even life itself. But when it comes to following Jesus, risk is right. Risk is right because the reward is infinite. And we're going to see this morning in our text, Jesus depicted to us as a prophet, as one who brings the very words of God. Indeed, he is, as John puts it in John 1, the Logos, the word of God made flesh. And we're going to see questions surrounding who Jesus is as, as a prophet. We'll see that his identity is mistaken. We'll see that his identity is at some points rejected. And in all of that, what we're going to see is that the prophets of God live a pretty lonely life. They live a lonely life because it's a life that requires great risk-taking. And in that risk-taking, people step back from them. People step away from them. Or people step to them in aggression and violence. So to follow Jesus, we have to risk three things. We have to risk, number one, dishonor from those who are closest to us. We see that in verses 1 to 6. Dishonor from those who are closest to us. We have to risk, number two, dependence on those who are newest to us, on strangers often. Dependence on those who are newest to us. And we have to risk, number three, even death from those who are over us. Death from those who are over us, verses 14 to 29. And this is why the prophetic life is a lonely life, and yet still, it's a life worth living. Look with me in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 29. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Josie, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed and healed them. 
King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias, Herodias's daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If we're going to live prophetic Christian lives, we're going to have to accept some risks. The first risk we want to see here is we risk dishonor from those closest to us. That's what we see in verses 1 to 6. Jesus returns to his hometown. That's a reference to Nazareth, where his family lived. And when you read the word hometown, what, what comes to mind? Normally, we think there's no place like home. We imagine mama's house. Uh, we imagine mama's cooking. Uh, we look forward to catching up with old friends. Our hometowns are, are usually places like the old sitcom Cheers. It's where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. Our hometown should be a place of acceptance, of comfort, of respect or honor. But that wasn't the case for Jesus. And it's not the case for anyone or many people who accept that prophetic aspect of following Jesus. Notice in verses 2 and 3, uh, he's invited to the synagogue and, and Jesus goes to the synagogue as is his practice and in the synagogue he begins to preach and teach there. This is a passage that is parallel to uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, where Jesus reads the scroll from Isaiah and, and says, today this prophecy from Isaiah about the coming of the Messiah is fulfilled in your hearing. In going to the synagogue, he's going right into the middle of Jewish religious life. He's going right into the middle of Jewish social life. He's going to the heart of the community. Notice the reactions of his hometown synagogue. First, they're astonished at his teaching. 
Again, this is likely the sermon from Luke chapter 4. They, they are shocked. They are rocked by what Jesus has just said to them. They're taken aback. But this is not a positive astonishment because notice, secondly, their reaction is to question Jesus's legitimacy. You can hear it in the Greek, this repetition of a word, this man, that man, this man. They don't even use his name. And they ask four or five questions about him that are, again, designed to undermine his legitimacy. They say, where did this man get these things? In other words, Jesus is not a student of any known rabbi to them. Who's his teacher? Where did he get this? And they ask the question, what is, what is this wisdom given to him? You know, what, what school of thought is he from? What, what theological tribe does he belong to? We don't recognize his tribe. And they ask, how are such mighty works done by his hands? They're questioning even the miracles that Jesus has been doing by the power of God. Is this not the carpenter? Ain't this the handyman? They don't even name his daddy. Isn't this Mary's son? In that culture, you would have traced your lineage to your father here, but here I think they're slighting him. Isn't this Mary's son? And then they name his brothers there, and they say, even his sisters are with us. They're questioning his family pedigree. They're questioning his pedigree. As one writer puts it, to the people of Nazareth, Jesus is the local boy. And they know no reason why he should have turned out to be any different from the rest of his family. They dissed the Lord in every way they could. And Jesus' family sided with them. You remember back in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, when they came to get Jesus and to take control of his body because they thought he was out of his mind. And then you see the third and final response it says there. Very simply, in verse 3, they took offense at him. They got big mad. Luke chapter 4, verses 28 and 30, tell us they were so angry they tried to kill Jesus. Look there with me. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. This is the greeting Jesus received at his hometown, in his hometown synagogue, his home church, so to speak, and by those closest to him. If we're going to be prophetic, we risk being dishonored by those closest to us. But notice the Lord's response in verse 4, these famous words. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See how increasingly intimate those circles are. His hometown, among his relatives, in his own household. In other words, everywhere a prophet goes, a prophet receives honor or respect. Except one place where he came from his home, his relatives, his family. And Jesus faced his stiffest opposition right here in Nazareth, right here among those who knew him best, those who were closest to him. Can you imagine the exhaustion he must have felt? I mean, he's been traveling, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, even raising a little girl from death at the end of chapter five. 
He's been traveling around the towns around Galilee, and now he's come back home to Nazareth. He is entering his hometown, and one would expect that he might receive a parade, that he might receive some honor, because they have obviously heard of his fame. They've heard of the great works that he has been done doing, but does he receive that? No. No one believes him. No one gives him credit. No one cheers him on. No one shows him honor among those closest to him. Our Lord received dishonor. Now, you know what this is like. A little small example as an illustration. Perhaps you have been telling your son or daughter something, uh, some piece of wisdom, maybe even right from the scripture, exhorting them to do this thing or that thing because it's wise and good. It's it's pleasing in God's sight, but they have turned a deaf ear to you. They don't listen to you. They don't, they don't heed your word. But, but then they go and they, they talk with some little friend of theirs, and their little friend tells them the same thing you told them. And all of a sudden, they act like they got struck with wisdom from heaven and believe the friend. Or maybe it's not your child. Maybe it's your spouse. You've been trying to tell your spouse something for a minute. And you've opened the word, you've prayed about it, you've told him again, maybe five times, you've been telling this for some number of years, and all of a sudden you're out with some other couple or something, just hanging out, and the, the spouse from the other couple says the same thing you've been telling them for years, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, that's, that's a good word right there. That's wisdom right there. What is that except kind of being dishonored in your own family, in your own home? playing a kind of prophetic role, telling someone the truth, uh, maybe even, again, from God's word, and instead of being listened to and honored, you kind of shut out. Folks treat you like, you, you just fill in the blank. What's the result here in verses 5 and 6? The dishonor and disbelief are so strong that Jesus could not do much in the way of mighty works in his hometown. He laid his hands on a few sick people and, and healed them. You get the sense that compared to the rest of his ministry, what much happening there in Nazareth. The unbelief was so strong that in verse 6, now we're told that Jesus marveled at it. There are only two times in the Bible where Jesus is described as marveling at something. I mean, just really like, <laughs> you know, wow. It's right here in verse 6. He marvels at the unbelief in his hometown. The other place is in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, when a centurion comes to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus says, okay, cool, let's go back to your house. And the centurion says, no, 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 you don't have to come to my house. He says, I'm a man under authority, and I have people under me. I tell them where to go, and they go. And he says, basically, all you have to do, Jesus, is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus stepped back, marveled at the man, marveled at his faith. There are two things that cause our Savior to marvel. Unbelief and true belief. The question is, which are we? Which, which are we doing that causes the Savior to marvel? Let me point out something, beloved. God's work in our lives and through our lives can be, un, can be interrupted by our unbelief. God's work can be hindered or stopped by the unbelief that we have in our hearts or even the, the unbelief of others that we are sometimes engaging. 
And that's what makes unbelief such a disastrous sin. It, it gets in the way of the Lord's work in our lives. The prophet of God brings the word of God to the people of God. The word of, of God is alive and it's active and it's powerful. And it's through his word that God does the bulk of his work. But if we are unbelieving in the face of God's word, then the work of the Lord gets slowed down, gets hindered, gets stopped. There's a log jam that happens. My non-Christian friend, this is true when it comes to your salvation. The main hindrance, the only hindrance, keeping you from the kingdom of heaven, keeping you from having your sins forgiven, keeping you from having a, a new life, an eternal life with God and the, the joy of God's salvation, the only thing keeping you from that is your unbelief. God has sent his only son into the world to do everything you need to be saved from God's wrath and an eternal hell. Jesus has died on the cross in your place for your sins so that you would not have to suffer God's judgment for your sins. Jesus lived a perfect life in your place to offer righteousness to God that would satisfy God because you could not and I could not. And God raised Jesus from the grave uh, after three days in order to defeat death for you. Everything that needs to be done to live an eternal life in God's family, forgiven, clean, whole, new, Jesus has done. And all God calls us to do is believe. Beloved, don't let your unbelief keep you from God's love and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. Don't do that. Why continue in unbelief? Why continue dishonoring and disbelieving the Son of God? What, what benefit is that to you, really? It only stops the work of God from being accomplished in your life. So, my friend, if you're not yet a Christian, repent of your unbelief. Turn away from it and repent from all your sins. Turn away from sin altogether and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him to rescue you, believing his word, that if you trust him, if you believe in him, you will not perish in sin, but you will have everlasting life with God the Father. And my Christian brother and sister, we have already believed the gospel, but unbelief is still a problem for us too, isn't it? Unbelief is one of those sins that so easily entangles us. Our unbelief hinders God's work of sanctification in our life, for example. Right now, the biggest challenge for some of us is believing that God's grace really is sufficient for whatever we face. For example, we desire a spouse. But in unbelief, we try to do things in our own wisdom. We try to do things our own way because God's taking too long and God might not send me the one I want. That's unbelief, beloved. In our unbelief, we, we've got a sin issue that's maybe been with us for a while. And we have sort of come to believe that God's never going to give us victory over it. God's never going to give us power to resist it. God's never going to take it away from us. That's unbelief. Or we want to serve the Lord in a certain way. 
But once again, unbelief has has this power to make us doubt that God will allow us that or prepare us for that or open a door for us in that regard. Our spouse, as I said a moment ago, tells us the truth about something, but, but we take offense instead of believing that our spouse is for us and desires our good. If, if some stranger told us the same thing, then we sort of glad and, and toofy and gummy, smiling and, and accepting it. But because we know our spouse, we refuse to listen to them. That's unbelief, beloved. So we need to study our unbelief, where it shows up, how it presents itself, what it most often attaches itself to, and we need to put it to death. We need to drive a stake through the heart of unbelief because the work of God depends on our responding to God in faith, even if those closest to us don't support us. That's the risk we take to live prophetic lives. We risk being dishonored by those closest to us but it's a risk that's worth it. Which brings us to the second thing. We risk dependence on those who are newest to us. That's what we see in verses 7 to 13. Verse 6, Jesus leaves his hometown. He went about among the villages teaching. Then in verse 7, the Bible tells us he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. I just said a moment ago that, that God working through us in ministry requires faith in God. Verses 7 to 13, where Jesus sends the disciples out two by two, uh, kind of demonstrates the centrality of faith in Christian mission and in Christian witness. Verses 7 to 13 are kind of um, training exercise, where Jesus uses a short-term mission trip in order to teach his disciples how to live by faith, how to live in dependence on others and especially on God. And he's training them for their ministry in their lives once he's gone, once he has been crucified, resurrected, and ascends to heaven. Jesus puts them in a place of dependence on God and dependence on others. He puts them in a situation where they must exercise faith. Look at the text, verses 8 and 9. They can only take the clothes on their back. No money, no food, no nothing. Verse 10. They must accept the hospitality of strangers. Luke's gospel gives us a a fuller picture of this uh, when Luke tells his version here. They are to seek the people of peace. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, There, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to send you out and and this mission will require you to accept the hospitality of strangers. Find these people of peace and let your peace rest upon them. Once somebody accepts you into your home, don't be going from house to house sort of eating at everybody's house. You're going to get a bad reputation for that. The gospel's going to get a bad reputation. No, stay at that one person's house the entire time you're at that town, in that town. Accept their hospitality. Live by faith in this way and preach the kingdom. That's Jesus' instruction. Verse 11, going back to uh, Mark 6. 
And if someone were to reject them, they were to shake the dust off their feet and testify against them. As another way of saying, basically, I leave you to God's judgment. Look with me again at Luke 10, beginning in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And that's what the apostles did. They went forth in this prophetic calling, preaching the kingdom, healing the sick. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, casting out demons. But it was a lifestyle that, that required them to risk being dependent upon God and dependent upon others rather than living in the resources of their own strength, in the resources of their own wealth. So how do we apply this? Well, if we're going to accept prophetic aspects of our calling, we have to risk this same kind of dependence upon God. And we have to risk the same kind of dependence upon others, even others who are new to us, strangers to us in new towns. So let me ask you a question. How independent and self-reliant would you say you are? Is there any place in your life where you are accepting God's call to live in complete dependence upon him and upon others. But let me know if you think I'm right or wrong. Maybe come to the Q&A this afternoon and, and, and tell me if you think I'm right or wrong about this. But I, I suspect that a lot of Christians are failing to live by faith because we hate the idea of depending on others. We especially don't want to ask for anything from anybody we don't quite know, do we? And if we are super honest, we have to admit that we don't like to live in dependence upon God either, do we? Here's what I've come to know. If we live dependent on ourselves and on our own resources, then we will refuse to be prophetic, as God calls us to, when we think our resources are at risk. If we're living in dependence on our resources rather than God, then guess what we protect when it's threatened? Our resources. We, we, we get our arms around it. We, we hold it back from destruction or, or usurpation. Our resources become our functional gods. They become idols. We do what the resources demand, and we protect the resources instead of doing what God demands and living in dependence on him. That, my friend, hinders the work of God in us and through us. How can we place ourselves in a position of total reliance on God? How can we learn to better live by faith so that the work of God in us and through us and to others goes forward without hindrance. And I just want to say as a second application, this means then that we still need to train ourselves to live this way, to live by faith. 
These events in Mark chapter 6 happened over 2,000 years ago. But, but Jesus has not given us a different method for training ourselves to live by faith. We still need to do the ministry and live the Christian life in the way that's described here, in a way that risks dependence upon God. For example, we were just talking with Joshua about planting a church in Congress Heights. Um, that, that, that church planting strategy is the same strategy that we see here in Mark chapter 6. It's depend on God, find people of peace, preach the gospel, minister to needs. We hope to see our brother Joshua lead in precisely that way. To, to get Congress Heights Community Church uh, going, he'll need to do all these things. He will be He'll need to be using the very method that Jesus himself taught. And he will need people who go with him, who embrace this same lifestyle, this same method of dependence upon God for all their needs. He's going to need elders with him who live and think this way. He's going to need disciples with him who go out two by two and in groups to evangelize. We want to send church planters and teams out in precisely this way. Pray that the Lord provides for these things for Congress Heights Baptist Church, or excuse me, Congress Heights Community Church. Pray the same for Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church. And beloved, don't stop praying for faith. For those of us here at Anacostia River Church, pray that we don't get complacent just because we've been around for a couple of years. Pray, pray that we don't fall back on our own resources and rely on them rather than God. Pray that we would be bold in the faith uh, and, and that we would intentionally put ourselves in positions of having to trust God to do the work, to do what we cannot do. We don't want as a church community to walk by sight. We want to walk by faith. It's by faith that we will see the Lord's greatest work done in our lives. That's true in our individual lives, and it's true in our life as an entire church community. So let's risk dependence on God so that we can see the work of God in and through our lives. Risk is right. Faith is right. It calls us to abandon ourselves and to depend on the God who saved us, which brings us to our third point. If we're going to embrace the prophetic calling that God sometimes places on us as a Christian community, then we will risk death from those over us. We will risk dishonor from those closest to us. We will risk uh, dependence uh, on those newest to us, and we will risk death from those over us. That's what we're going to see in verses 14 to 29. News of Jesus' ministry spreads to King Herod. Herod is not truly a king. He's a, he's a puppet governor placed in charge by Rome. When the news reaches Herod, there are all kinds of alternative theories about who Jesus is. This is the thing, beloved. If you accept a prophetic call and become publicly noticed, people will have all kinds of views about you. No prophet has good PR except false prophets. Speak truth to power, and power will speak lies about you. Notice the theories that abound around Jesus. Number one, John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's what people say in the second part of verse 14. Other people say in verse 15 
that Jesus is Elijah. They're thinking about those prophecies in the Old Testament that say that Elijah will return before the Messiah comes. And then there are those folks who say, basically, Jesus is an old school prophet. He's like the prophets of old in the second part of verse 15. None of these accurately describe the Son of God. But Herod believes that Jesus is John returned from the dead. He believes that because he had John beheaded, as it says in verse 16. His conscience is bothering him, and, and he thinks John is haunting him from the grave. Why was, why was John beheaded? The story really takes up the rest of our section, all the way down to verse 29. Let me highlight the high points. Verse 17, Herod stole his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Verse 18, John told Herod that that was unlawful, that was sinful, that was contrary to God's word, contrary to God's rule. So John spoke truth to power. Then verse 19, Herodias, he had a, a grudge, she held a grudge and sought to kill John. That's the wife right now. She's mad. She vexed that John done called her out like that. She wants John dead. But for a while now, Herod is protecting John because Herod fears John and Herod knows that John is a righteous man. That's verse 20. Then one night, things take a turn. It's Herod's birthday. Verse 21, he throws himself a party and, and he's got everybody there. He's got nobles there. He's got the military there. Uh, he's got the leading men of Galilee there. Uh, it's, a, it's an A-list Hollywood party. He's got the red carpet rolled out, and everybody's there. Now, while he has everyone together, Herodias' daughter dances for the party. Now, I don't know what kind of dance this was, but, but the king and the party liked it so much that the king promises to give the girl whatever she wants. And, and boasting, wanted to show off his riches before he guessed, before his guests, he says, you know what, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And the girl wasn't too bright. She didn't know how to answer the question. Man offered her half the kingdom. She didn't say yes. She went to her mom and asked her mom what, what she should do. And the mom tells the daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Herodias has been lying in wait for an opportunity to kill John. And this is it. The daughter goes back immediately, says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, Herod is stuck in front of his guests now. He doesn't want to look bad in front of the important people. So he orders John's beheading, and the girl gives her mother John's head on a plate. That just gives you an indication of how sick Herodias' heart was. It's a gruesome scene. Now here's the thing, beloved. To be truly prophetic, we must speak truth to power. But speaking the truth to power is to risk death as a prophet. That's why the prophet leads a lonely life. That's why many folks don't want that mantle. Not many people are willing to be truly prophetic because not many people are willing to risk their neck for the truth. But that's not John. John spoke the truth to power even though it first got him jailed and then got him killed.
how do we apply this to our day? I want to suggest four applications. Number one, the truth is often unpopular. We just need to know that. John's only crime was telling the truth. He told these two sinners that their relationship was not right in God's sight. They didn't like that. People still don't like, like to have the truth told to them, especially about their personal lives and their sexual sins. People still get angry, even angry to the point of wanting to hurt or to kill sometimes. The truth was unpopular then. The truth is unpopular now. God's prophetic people, though, will side with the truth and forget about popularity. We got to resolve to be those kind of people. Number two, the truth is more powerful than rulers. Herod was there with his display of, of wealth and power. But Herod's dead now. Everybody at that party is dead. But the truth is still alive. The truth still lives on. The truth of God's word still lives on. Herod and Herodias and her daughter, in fact, are all judged by that same truth. They are judged by the word of God, which John preached to them. God's law doesn't grade on a curve. We don't get a pass because we are royalty or because we are rich or because we're the leading people in our neighborhood. God's word applies to every soul and every soul will give an account based on God's word. So the word of truth is more powerful than the rulers of men. You have to side with one or the other. Beloved, side with God's word, not with mere man. Because the truth is more powerful than rulers. Number three, the, the truth is more important than our lives. The truth is more important than our lives. We should die for the truth rather than having the truth die for us. If John were not a righteous man, he could have chosen to apologize to them, offer a fake apology. He, he could have kept the truth to himself, never said a mumbly word. He could have flattered Herod and Herodias. But John was a righteous man. John was a man of the truth. And telling the truth was more important to John than his freedom or his life. He went to jail for what he preached to Herod and Herodias. He, he, he While in jail, he was put to death for that same truth. John was a great prophet. Jesus says the, the greatest man to ever live, born of a woman. He understood that God's truth, though, was more important than his greatness. That God's truth was more important important even than his natural life. I hope we take that view rather than compromise the truth because it's unpopular or too personal. And may the Lord Jesus himself make us a prophetic people who would rather die than lie because the truth is more important than our lives. The fourth application we need to be truth people in our day. We live in a day when in our country's highest office, there's a, a war being waged on truth. Every day in streams of tweets, we now have a president whose tweets are being monitored by social media platform that almost doesn't monitor anything. 
because of the falsehoods and the danger of those falsehoods that pour forth from him every day. Our, our president has told more lies than anyone can count. Our president has given us new language for lying and new language for discrediting the truth. We now have in our vocabulary words like fake news and alternative facts thanks to our president. We now have to pay full-time fact checkers for our politicians just so the people will know what's true and what's false. Let me give you one truth, beloved, that's unpopular, that still must be told, that some Christians used to believe, but now turn away from. And that's this truth. Character still matters. Character still matters. It matters in God's people. It matters in God's leaders. It matters in the leaders of secular governments. An immoral leader will make immoral decisions. The immoral decisions will sometimes lead to the death of God's prophetic people. That's what we're seeing with John here. That's what we see in verses 21 to 26. Herod was a man of low character. And that low character was seen in not just one, but in a series of immoral, compromising decisions. It begins in verse 17. Herod steals his brother's wife. And a man who will do that, Lord, he will do anything. We're not surprised then that Herod imprisoned John for telling the truth. That's the second immoral decision, verses 17 to 18. Herod lacked courage and faith enough to commit to the truth that John preached, verse 20. That's a moral flaw, the sin of unbelief that we've been talking about. He was an ostentatious and extravagant man, verse 21. He was immoral enough to allow his stepdaughter to parade herself before an entire party of people, verse 22. He boasted the sin of pride before his guests, and that pride put him in a moral pickle, verses 22 and 23. Because of the fear of man, yet another character flaw in sin, Herod kept an unrighteous promise to an immature girl rather than do the right thing and free John, verses 26 to 28. By the time this thing is all over, Herod was willing to kill a prophet of God. You see, it's a series of immoral choices that end in murder. Don't tell me character doesn't matter. And don't tell me the character of the one you don't like matters while the character of the one you do like doesn't matter. Character matters for everyone in power. It matters, it matters in a thousand ways, big and small. I'm with Maya Angelou. When someone shows you who they are, Believe in the first time. People know themselves much better than you do. That's why it's important to stop expecting them to be something other than who they are. Right now we have a man in the White House whose character has been on display from day one. He's been telling us who he is, showing us who he is from day one. He's bragged about his exploitation and assault of women. He's bragged about his wealth. He's bragged about not paying taxes. He's undermined every American institution for righteousness and justice. He's spoken in ways that have gotten his should have gotten his mouth washed out with soap. He's stoked racial resentment and racism. He's flirted with violent militia and white supremacist groups. He's used the nation's agencies to investigate his political rivals and 
fired government officials when they wouldn't do his bidding. Right now, he's breaking every norm of presidential elections upheld since George Washington. That's the tip of the iceberg. And yet, we have thousands upon thousands of professing Christians turning a blind eye to this sad excuse for leadership rather than taking on the mantle of prophetic calling. Right now, we have thousands and thousands of professing Christians so drunk with the hope of power that they refuse to speak truth to power. Right now, we have Christians all over this country carrying on a public campaign of ridicule, mocking, lying, and slander against other Christians who do speak the truth. We've reached a dangerous point, beloved, in the life of the church. We are right now facing and experiencing and have been for five years now another great schism in the church. It's a, it's a schism wherein the church is tearing itself apart and truth is the casualty. We've reached a point, a dangerous point, when God's people live as if the truth does not matter, as if the truth should not be told without respect to person. We're at a dangerous point when, when we only want to tell the truth about the other guy, about the other side, about the other party, but not speak the truth to our guy. You see, the, the real sort of challenge of a prophetic calling is will we speak the truth inside of our camp? Will we speak the truth inside of our clique? Will we speak the truth to those that we have helped to get where they are and hold them accountable to the truth? That's when we were being truly prophetic as a Christian. If we're going to be a prophetic community that follows Jesus, we need to be willing to be rejected by our home team. We need to risk rejection by those who are over us. And the problem with the country is that the church has not been consistently prophetic enough. Our positions have been partisan, not prophetic. And we don't believe righteousness exalts a nation. We believe our candidate does, too many of us. We will baptize our candidate in the unholy water. We can pour over them to make them religious seeming. We can, we can in, in order to have power, make sure we... We, we stay in the good graces of the powerful. We will, we will christen them in, in ways that are clearly contrary to their character. But I'm here to tell you, God has sent us a prophet who says his kingdom is not of this world. God has sent us a prophet to tell us we should let God be true and every man a liar. God has sent us a prophet who says the, the truth will make us free. God has sent us a prophet to say judgment begins at the household of God. God has sent us a prophet to ask, what does it profit you, O oh man, to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? God has sent us a prophet to say, if we are ashamed of him before men, then he will be ashamed of us before our Father in heaven. Even now, God is speaking truth to us through his word. And the question is, is anybody listening? Is anybody listening? 
Does anybody believe the prophets of God anymore? Does anybody believe the prophetic word of the Bible anymore? Does anybody take it so seriously that they would speak truth to power? Whoever is in the seat of power. God's question to us as a church this morning is, will we take up the call to live prophetic lives? He's not promising that's the easy life. That's the lonely life. That's the life where your family rejects you. That's the life where you have to go out and sometimes depend upon others or depend upon God. That's the life where you, speaking the truth to power, might even be risking jail or death. And he's asking the question, do you believe in me enough? Do you believe in my word that you will live that way and risk that way? for my glory. We're looking for paneled houses and cushy seats and comfortable rides. God is raising up prophets who wear camel's hair and eat wild honey and locusts, live in the wilderness and seek the desolate places. Because if truth is your company, you're never alone. God is with you. And if we would be close to God, we must stay close to the truth of his word. And we must tell it. We must tell it as sure as the day is long. And we must take our stand with it. And if truth has offended you, we need to recognize that we're the problem, not the truth. We shouldn't be like those in the synagogue offended at the truth. We should not be like Herodias carrying a grudge because of the truth. If God hits us between the eyes with the truth, blink and then bow your head and pray. And ask the Lord to help you to accept your lumps, to declare that he's true, and follow him in that same prophetic spirit and mantle that made him lonely, but that brought him glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause your truth to reign in us. We pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to live in your truth. We pray that you would help us to stop fearing man. We pray that you'd help us to stop being so concerned with what others say and how they see it. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would free us from the influences of, uh, of those with big ministries or platforms or TV shows or television news anchors or political pundits, whatever. Let's put them all in the category of men and women who put their pants on one leg at a time like we do. Instead, let us be captivated by you, by your glory, by your beauty, and by your truth. And let us go forward with, the, with a prophetic boldness filled with your spirit, praying for each other as Paul does in Ephesians 6, that we would open our mouths and speak boldly as we ought, declaring the scriptures, declaring the gospel, and like John here before Herod and Herodias, not being afraid to apply the scripture and the gospel to the personal lives and the actions of those around us, not, not in self-righteousness, not in brash, arrogant, bullish behavior, but with the hope of evangelists that men and women might be saved, with a love for the truth, with a humility that comes from knowing that we have sinners too, 
but for your grace, we would still be lost in sin, but with boldness nonetheless. Help us to get the balance right and help us to speak truth to power, no matter who holds it. Help us to be faithful, O Lord, we pray, even if we must be lonely and completely dependent upon you. Do this, we ask for your glory. In Jesus' name.